G'day and welcome to a very special Glory Days podcast, where we take a look back on the first 100 years of the Griffith Black and Whites Rugby League Club. The podcast has been split into two episodes, where you'll hear from the people who have made the club what it still is today, a strong and inclusive community club in the Griffith region. I hope you enjoy episode A. Well, it's been part of my life since 1966 is when I first start, started playing. I've sort of been involved, player. I still believe I probably hold the record for the most games played by any individual. Uh, it's been, rugby league's been part to this day. It still plays a big part in my life. I just love the game. I love the body contact. There was nothing better than to hit in and one bloke could hit you from one side, one bloke could hit you from the other and you'd look up and say, good tackle, pal, you know, but come back again next time, will you, mate? So rugby league's been part of my life. It still is today. I'm still involved. The club means everything to me. Plus, I, I love people that are down to bring them up, you know, in life. If there's a farmer that's struggling, I love to go and help him and get him back on his feet. The same as a club, and we've always been known to be a bit of battlers. We've had the good years, but we've also had bad years. The club sporting-wise has been everything to me. The friendship and the players, I can't wait till this reunion to get back, you know, the days that players that I played with in 66 and 75 and 98, it means a lot to me, yes. So how did rugby league start in Griffith? Well, it kicked off in 1920 when a combination of irrigation commission workers constructing the channels were looking for some recreation. Brian Berakai and Frank Wilkins gathered a group of local lads and challenged Leeton to a game on a vacant plot of ground behind the Griffith Filtration Unit. They found support from a group of farmers in the Maroole region who had been granted soldier settlement properties post-World War I. Gradually, interest grew to a point that in 1923 they were playing regular games against Leeton, Yenda, Barellon, Ardlethan and Wamoon. The Griffith side reached their first final in 1923 but were beaten in a close game by Leeton at Barellon. Some of the players in that match included halfback Billy Lyons, fullback Jack Scrivener, tough front rower Arthur Dossiter, George Hawkins, Ken Doherty and Sid Morrigan. With no organised competition to play in on a regular basis, as it is today in Group 20, the Griffith Rugby League Club was formed and played against other teams in different formats. The team initially competed for a raft of cups that were played as Challenge Cups with the games being played at the cup holders' home ground. From 1923 onwards, the number of cups for which the club could play for expanded rapidly. It seemed like every few weeks a new cup was created. The cups that were played for in the southwest and northern areas of the Riverina region totaled almost 30. Some of the cups were Tooth's Cup, Sanderson Cup, Burge Cup, KB Lager Cup, Barker Cup, Tonkin Cup, Hilston Citizens Cup, Zigzag Cup, Southern Districts Champions Cup, but the four most prestigious and sought after cups were to be the Lyceum, Tolk, Roxy and Coronas Cups. Griffith held the Lyceum Cup from its 1924 inception to mid-1927. 
The Lyceum Cup continued on even after competitions were created. It continued right through until the inception of Group 20 in 1954. Mick Sheen explains where the first games were played and what the facilities were like. The change room was a bit basic. It was a uh, public and smooth during the uh, time of uh, the dog races. We used it as a dressing room. There was only one shower facility, which was a cold one. In the middle of winter, it wasn't very nice. At one stage there, the, uh, one of our blokes was was in the shower. By gee, there's a, there's a bit of uh, hot water coming through. Somebody said, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Peter Katsilda's peeing down your leg. <laughs> so that was used normally as a, as a bar? Yeah. At, at the dogs' at, yeah. ground, was that at um, Mink? That was, they called it the dog ground, which is the Greyhound Coursing Club, or they leased it really, and it is now uh, called the uh, Solomad Stadium. Before that, it was just known as the dog ground. Then it was the E.W. Moore Oval, and then the Solomad. Yeah. So, ironically, after 100 years, you're still at the same ground? Yep, for sure. And what was the ground surface like? Very basic. One side was used for training. Of course, it was all cut up. And if you, there was a dry period, it was just like playing on sandpaper. The other side generally had a, a few cat's heads about, and you had to be very careful where you fell. The current playing ground was the brainchild of two ardent rugby league fans and publicans in 1933 from the Hotel Griffith and Victoria Hotel. The two hotels joined forces and took a long-term lease on a block that was to be used for the removal of water waste from the two hotels. Both publicans handed over the land to the Griffith Rugby League Club to be used as a playing field. Today, that site is the home ground of rugby league in Griffith with various name changes along the way. Today, proudly known as Solar Mad Stadium. Griffith during these early days played against teams from Ardlethan, Darlington Point, Tamora, West Wyalong, Cootamundra, Aubrey, Yenda, Merriwagga, Barellon, Lake Cargeligo, Hilston, Lockhart, Leeton, Wamoon, Wagga and Tumut. Mick Sheen explains the mode of transport and the cooperation of other sporting fixturing. Earlier on, there was a lot of train travel, uh, mainly on the southwest line, that's uh, from Griffith to Dunee. They used to combine the Aussie rules and the rugby league together, and also the uh, the women's hockey team, which is interesting at times. <laughs> Was it a return trip or was it an overnight stop? Oh, yeah, stop? returned. Oh, for sure, yeah. When we came home, oh, I, I, I was on a few of them. If we won, we'd tell the train uh, driver, when he'd come into Griffith, he'd, he'd go, cock-a-doodle-doo. On the... All the sporting organisations at the time would have to coordinate the, the draws for the football, the league, hockey, yep. to make it yep. work, to make it worthwhile? That's right, yeah. If it was out, out of kilter, we used to use the uh, bus... Or private transport. What about the back of the truck? Yeah, and the juniors, we had a, uh, a bloke called Cedric Billet, an avid spectator and uh, sponsor of us. Uh, he had a, uh, a farm truck. He put a tarpaulin over the, the top of the back and away we'd go. And it was very interesting. At one point, Griffith held six of the above cups at the same time. The exact details of which particular cup held are not detailed, but included Lyceum Cup, Roxy Cup and the Garden of Roses Cup. In 1924, 
the Southwestern District competition commenced. It was at this time that the famous black and white colours appeared with hooped black and white on the jumper. This competition only lasted a few seasons, with Griffith's best result being a grand final loss to Leeton in the first year. It was around this time that the emphasis switched from club football to challenge competitions. Some of the prized silverware trophies won by the Black and Whites were the Lyceum, Burge, Roxy, Tolk, Garden of Roses, Coronas, Flynn, Horselman, Rose Bowl Cups, as well as the Batros Trophy. During the late 1920s, one of the all-time greats of Griffith sport, Bob James, played with the Rugby League Club, being one of many sports he starred at, including cricket. James had the rare distinction of playing against touring English teams in the same year in two different sports. He represented New South Wales country in both rugby league and cricket against the English. James was also an excellent boxer and tennis player. Local sports store owner Bill Evans came to Griffith in the 1920s, but a spate of injuries ended his playing career. He did, however, become a strong supporter of the club. Evans always enjoyed telling the story of Bob James travelling with him and the referee, Mr Morrigan, from Griffith to a game in Bar Medman. The trip down to the game went well, with great conversation. However, things took a nasty twist when referee Morrigan sent Bob James from the field that day. The long trip home was a quiet one, with no conversational exchange between player and referee. Bill Evans, the driver, decided to stop at Ardleffen for dinner and by this time was fed up with the silence and determined to break it. The silence was broken when referee Morrigan said to James, had a bit of bad luck today, Bob. This brought forth, as Bill Evans said, the biggest blast of swearing he had ever heard. It ended when James said to Morrigan, what would you have done under the circumstances? Morrigan replied, I would have punched him. That's exactly what I did and you sent me off, James shouted. Back came the reply from Morrigan, but I didn't get caught, proving once again the referee generally has the final say. Another legend of the club in that era was Sepp Chittick, who Mick Sheen reflects upon. If we're ever short of a coach, Sepp Chittick would step in. He, he was, I think he was a coach for about three or four years. I don't think he was paid. He done it all voluntarily and he was a, an avid committee man and so was his wife. His wife used to work on the auxiliary. He had two sons. Uh, uh, they both played for uh, for Griffith, played right. halfback. He came from around Campbelltown and he came in here and he settled uh, settled out at um, Bilbanga on a, a dairy farm. That's how he started. Another player who had a distinguished career with the club during the late 1920s and early 30s and in later years as an official was Lex Small. He hailed from Galong but settled in Griffith and was regarded as one of the finest wingers of the time for the Griffith Magpies. His natural ability to score tries won many competition and Challenge Cup games. In the early 1930s, the Gleeson Shield competition commenced. It split the Riverina into a Western and Eastern division. The winners of each division would then play off for the title of a Riverina champion. Griffith never won this competition. Their best result was a semi-final loss to Tamora in 1934. In 1935, the Group 17 competition commenced. It was played through to 1941 before going into recess for World War II and recommencing in 1945. Griffith 
played in this competition until 1950. The period in Group 17 was a very successful one for Griffith, winning many titles from 1935 to 1949, with Leeton, the biggest rival, defeating them in three grand finals. In 1935, Griffith won its inaugural premiership, beating Leeton 13-7 at Griffith. They then took out the Riverina Champions title when they beat Wagga, the Group 9 premiers. The win against Leeton was before a record gate of 103 pounds. It was also a record crowd for a game in the region. Leeton had led 7-0 at half-time before the Black and Whites powered home in front of a boisterous home crowd. The win the following week to claim the Riverina Championship was one-way traffic as the mighty Black and Whites belted the Wagga side 53-10 after leading 28-0 at half-time. Griffith again defeated Leeton in the Group 17 Grand Final of 1936 before another record crowd and a tight scoreline of 7-2. Joe Murray scored the only try of the game. The semi-final win the week before had the Rugby League world talking, with Griffith accused of using extreme roughhouse tactics in its 13-2 win over Yenda. The local paper didn't miss the local team. Patrons who attended the Griffith v Yender match played last Sunday at Griffith were sadly disillusioned, expecting to see a display of classy football as the match was a competition semi-final. Instead, they were treated to an exhibition of basher tactics and all the illegalities known in the game. Griffith were the chief offenders in this respect. As a match, it was a public disgrace, and it is little wonder that the patronage is lost to the opposition code when the public was asked to pay money to witness actions which would not do credit to a dogfight. Play was very rough, all in all tactics being the order of the day. This reached a climax when Laurie Smith, the Ender captain, received his marching orders together with Weir of Griffith. The Griffith man was clearly the aggressor. One of the game's greatest ever players, Eric Weisel, despite his advancing years, played against Griffith in 1937 when playing for Yanko. Weisel played eight times for Australia with his entire playing career in the Riverina, never playing in Sydney at any stage despite numerous offers. He finished his career with Wagga Magpies in 1938-39. Like so many regions and towns across Australia, sport was put on hold with the advent of World War II. Coaches were appointed in 1940 and 1941, but very little structured competition was played until the 1945 season. Under the guidance of Sepp Chittick, who was appointed a non-playing coach in 1945, Griffith remained competitive in Challenge Cup games played during the early part of the season. In one match, Griffith challenged Wamoon for the Roxy Cup and in a close game, Griffith won 8-7, lifting the cup back to Griffith again. However, in May, the Group 17 executive called a special meeting of the club's delegates and it was agreed to recommence competition games. Only limited rounds would be played. At season's end, a knockout would be played with the winner awarded the Garden of Roses Cup, which had been donated by Garden of Roses Cafe proprietors Jim Theodore and Jim Prenise. Griffith won the knockout, opponents and score unknown, and in doing so claim the Group 17 Minor Premier's title. The finish of the 1945 season was highlighted by a women's rugby league match at the Rugby Oval when the Land Army girls were beaten 6-0 by the Griffith Town Girls. Such was the popularity of the inaugural game, a second match was played in which Griffith won again. 
There was also other important female supporters, very loyal to the club, a Mrs. Lee and Mrs. Iper, and later Mrs. Betts, as John Gavin and Mick Sheen explain. Yeah, well, Mrs. Betts was a real staunch black and white supporter. Only one eye does there ever come. And, you know, this day, Leeton playing Griffith at the dog ground, and Leeton had a big Billy Watson. Was the, he, like, he was 22 stone, about six foot three, huge man. Yeah. And we had a player by the name of Georgie Green, bit of a larrikin. They'd been at each other all day. Breakout, and Lenny Lamont from Leeton was the ref. It was a bit one eyed towards Leeton. So Mrs. Betts runs on the sideline and yells out to Watto. Leave him alone, you big mongrel. She was up and down the sideline you know, every game. They sat together and they, they sat near the um, winning post and they used to pick on a third player of the opposition and give him hell. I played in one game and uh, smacker, uh, smacker Garner, poor old smacker, he, he picked me up and, th- and threw me over the fence. Right in front of the Mrs. Iper and Mrs. Lee, of course, they got straight into him, you cruel thing. You shouldn't pick on a young bloke like that. I was, I was only about 65 k's, and he was about 100. Yeah, and uh, poor old Smacker, off, off the field, he was a real gentle bloke and a gentleman. You could see, I could see by the look on his face, he, he was very put out. Anyway, they, they never left him alone for the rest of the day again. The remainder of the decade post-war was still littered with disruption and quite a few changes of coaches and playing personnel as communities like Griffith adjusted back to a more normal life. In 1949, Tom Burke, a goal-kicking machine from Balmain, was appointed coach where he led the club to a premiership victory over Leeton, 5-3 at Leeton, in the Zone 2 of the Group 917 competition. In front of a crowd of over 2,000 at the Leeton Sports Ground, Burke's inspirational leadership paved the way for the Premiership victory after going so close the two previous years. This set up the clash with Group 9 Premier Tumut to decide the Riverina champions. The Griffith Club chartered a special steam train for its players and over 200 supporters to travel to Cootamundra for the clash against Tumut. After leading by three points at half-time, Tumut finished a stronger, scoring a converted try with just four minutes remaining to win 11-10 and take the title of Riverina champions. Griffith made it back-to-back Group 17 premierships in 1950 when they beat Wamoon 7-3 after a stirring struggle in front of 2,000 spectators at Griffith Oval. Captain coach Tom Burke led superbly. The only Griffith try was scored by Evergreen hooker Mick Navin, who flew down the touchline to score. Griffith also had to navigate a penalty count of 14-3 in favour of Wamoon. This was to be the last year Griffith played in Group 17. Mick Sheen speaks about Burke and his handy wage on offer. Came from Balmain. He played coached here for two seasons, 1949 and 1950. Uh, I think he took, they took the uh, premiership off 49. So it was reputedly was on £20 a week. He was. That'd be good coin in those days. Yeah. Well, I, I started work in uh, 1948 and I was on $3, £1.10. In 1951, Griffith entered a Riverina-based competition titled Riverina Rugby Football League Association and played in this competition from 1951 to 53. Peter White was coach in 1951-52 and Cess Fifield was appointed non-playing coach in 1953. Mick Sheen explains the breakaway move and the formation of Group 20. 
It, it was over boundaries. They wanted, uh, wasn't involved in it, but I was playing around about the time. They, they wanted to uh, put us into uh, a different zone that just didn't suit us. Griffith and Wagga got together and formed a breakaway league called the Riverina Rugby League Football Association. And that went on from 1951 until 1953. Did, did you have an inkling that Group 20 was about to start in 54? Or what? Or how did Group 20 come about? Because you were Group 17 before That's the right. breakaway. Well, apparently uh, the powers of B got together. They decided that, you know, that they, they'd come back into the uh, country rugby league and they formed Group 20 because of that. It was, sort of, it was a bit of a good peace resolution. Sort yeah, of it was, it was, yeah. The competition was a breakaway, which was not affiliated with the New South Wales Country Rugby League. Other teams were Leeton, Wamoon, Wagga and Wagga RAAF. Griffith did not win any of the competitions in those three years, but did record a surprise win over Yenda in the Lyceum Challenge Cup in front of a large crowd at Wade Park Yenda. Yenda had held the cup for 10 years, but could not hold off a brilliant display by the Black and Whites, who won 14 to 10. Another significant point in time was the formation of a junior team in 1952. Games were arranged and played against the West Wyalong Half Moons, Wagga Lifesavers and Narandra. The side played in red and green colours of South Sydney. By the next year, the Senior Griffith Rugby League Club took the junior club under its wing and so began the under 18 competition. The junior club by its second year had over 400 pounds in the bank. The end of the 1953 season was an end of an era, as the 1954 season would herald in the commencement of Group 20, where the black and whites are still playing today. Five premierships and plenty of success in the Challenge Cup competitions ensured that the Griffith Rugby League Club was a successful one, and in a wonderful position to enjoy the longevity and prosperity ahead in Group 20. A new era had begun in Riverina Rugby League with the formation of Group 20, made up of teams in the Murrumbidgee and Wagga, as well as other parts of the Riverina. The new start prompted a new coach with an enthusiastic and loyal group of supporters led by town clerk Ted Moore and the licensee of the Gilgowie Hotel, George Luez, luring Australian international Albert Paul to the Black and Whites. Paul played four test matches for Australia and was part of the 1952-53 Kangaroo Tour of England. He had represented New South Wales and New South Wales country. He played club football in Newcastle and had stints at both Newtown and Canterbury. Paul brought with him tough 5'8", Billy Roberts, and the following year, another three former teammates from the Newcastle area, Jake Moses, Sid Stokes and Rusty Rusden joined. Moses went on to play for Riverina and later Balmain. Mick Sheen, Seth Spence and John Cassily spoke about Albert Paul. Oh, well, he played for Australia to start with. He was a bloke that invented the stiff arm. <laughs> and he used to execute it a bit, did he? He did. He was very adept at it. He played in the forwards, yeah. Second yeah. roll lock. Seth, did you watch him play much? Oh, yeah. So your brother played with him? Yes, his brother played second row. Second row lock. Well, he came up through the juniors. He played 54. He only played the one year, I think. But as I say, I watched him quite a bit. And as Mick said, 
he uh, had a good, pretty good coat hanger, yeah. I remember he, uh, Jackie Hartwell played for Wamoon. He was a coach. He nearly killed the poor mugger, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's a very hard footballer, yes. As Mick said, he played for Australia, so he, he was very good, yeah. But I remember him as a, a second row forward. He used to make big skirting runs from second row. Had a bullet-like pass. Uh, he was an all-round class player. I think we had a paid player with him, a bloke called Billy Roberts. We had a move going called, it was, I think it was something like up Griffith. Uh, I flew the ball to Billy Roberts and then re- went round him. Got a, got another pass, supposed to put a gap in the back line. Who orchestrated that move? Oh, that was Al, one of Albert's ideas, yeah. Billy Roberts was a smart 5'8". Those days, a uh, uh, coach used to come and usually had a paid player with him. During the 1954 season, Albert Paul captained Riverina against England at Wagga, with the tourists winning a great game of rugby league 36 to 26 in front of just under 11,000 spectators. The 1954 Premiership was earned the hard way, requiring a second grand final to be played due to a rule at the time that permitted the minor Premiers to challenge the team they had lost to in the first grand final. Griffith defeated Wamoon, the minor premiers, 28-0 at Griffith before a record crowd that paid £522 at the gate, with Fred McNabb scoring two tries. Wamoon, however, exercised its right to challenge Griffith, and both sides took the field at Narandra the following Sunday before an even bigger crowd, paying £529. In one of the club's greatest moments, they overcame a half-time deficit and a player short for the entire second half to win 20 to nine and take the inaugural Group 20 Premiership title after having finished last in 1953. The next three years were dominated by the Wagga Magpies who finished minor Premier and Premier between 1955 and 57. Griffith in that time were coached by Brian Popper Clay and Buddy Bowman. Clay only had one year in Griffith as he was looking for an avenue to join the St George Club. Mick Sheen explains more. Brian Clay uh, came to Griffith after uh, Albert Paul. He came for a year because he was playing with the new town and he, w- he wanted to shift and the only reason that he could do was to play a, a year in, in the country. So he came, came to Griffith. I'm not too sure how they, um, how they, how they went but he was a real good player. He went back and he play, played for St George and there are unrestricted 11 premierships. That's how he came here, Mick. He only had the one year. He needed to do that. So he, he needed to do that. He was, I think he was only about 20 or 21 or something rather. He was a convenience. Probably a bit of good coin. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, there was a bit of money about in those days. Clay's return to Sydney was memorable being named in the top 100 players of the century after winning eight premierships with St George and playing eight times for Australia. The 1958 season was another premiership season with the appointment of former Parramatta, Western Suburbs and Australian player Ian Johnston proving a masterstroke. Johnston was inducted into the Parramatta Hall of Fame, being the first ever Parramatta player chosen for Australia. He played 90 matches for Parramatta and coached them for two years. Griffith defeated minor premiers Leeton 16-8 in the grand final, with star recruit Cole Ratcliffe playing a major role in the team's success, scoring two powerful tries himself. Ratcliffe, born in Tamora, grew up in West Wylong. John Casorley and John Gavin explain 
They did it the hard way without Coach Ian Johnson to an injury suffered the week before. Yes, the 58 side was um, noted for the, the, the grand final. Our coach couldn't play because he had his ankle broken. In the- yeah, it was in one of the semi-finals against Leeton. Alan Lynch kicked him in the ankle, yeah. So um, there was a, the, the winger was called Johnny Lander. Johnny Lander, he came in and played 5-8. I remember Peter Payne scored a try on the wing. Cole Ratcliffe scored a try. And I think Neil Chittick was on the other wing. I think he scored a try. Mm. Um, I remember tackling Alan Lynch from behind. Put him, I brought him down beautifully and we went on to win. Player Chittick, you mentioned? Seb's son, Neil, yeah. Uh, his nickname was Sprayer. Sprayer, Sprayer but that's yeah. what he used to do when he yeah. drank too much. He used to spray everywhere. <laughs> Blake Blanova, Terry Berthon, local player, was at St Joseph's College in Sydney and that's where he met Bobby Landers. And then Landers came down with Berthon and, in the holidays and... That's how Landis sort of got introduced to rugby league in Griffith. And he, he was he was about six foot three, magnificent built Landis. He held the record in Sydney for a goal kick from 66 metres away. Enormous kicker. So he, they brought, as John said, when, when uh, Johnson couldn't play, they brought uh, Landis up into the first grade. And he had, he had John at half... Landers at 5'8", Bennett and Ratcliffe in the centres. No wonder they won. Yeah. Peter, Peter Payne was on the wing. Yeah. Payne was on one. Uh, Stan, Stan Gilliard was in the front row. And uh, Neil Chittick was on one wing and Peter Payne was on, on the, the other. other. What are your memories of the day, the grand final day, John? Can you still remember it reasonably well? Uh, I remember uh, I made a break from the scrum and Neil Chittick was coming up uh, and I threw him a ball and the bloke was coming towards him and bowled him over and I sold him a dump. Sprayer said, thanks, mate. <laughs> 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 Later on, he went and scored a try, I think. That's right. So we compensated in some way. Can you remember the celebrations from... Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a celebration the next morning at the Area area Hotel Saloon Bar. We all turned up. We were a bit frail, but we turned up, you know. I think it went on all week, really. Those days, you really did celebrate. All the gang got together. As you should. Got off work and crank on, yeah. Recruited to Western Suburbs, Ratcliffe played in the Magpies' 1952 grand final win over South Sydney. Ratcliffe represented both city and country, and in fact, while playing for New South Wales country against City at the SCG in 1958, he played against Brian Popper Clay, who had coached Griffith two years previous. Ratcliffe represented Riverina against both Great Britain and France. He was named in the Group 9 Team of the Century. In later years, he ran pubs in Griffith. John Gavin spoke about Cole Ratcliffe. When uh, Ratcliffe went to Western Suburbs in Sydney, before he came here, Harry Wells was the gun centre for Australia. 59, when Reg Gazdier first came on the scene, it was tipped that Ratcliffe may partner Wells in the Kangaroo Tour, but they, they chose Gazdier instead because he was a young 19-year-old, and uh, so that was probably Cole's closest to getting to represent Australia. Another member of the 1958 side was 18-year-old Bob Landers, who went to Eastern Suburbs for 108 matches. He finished at Penrith with another 68 matches. In all, he scored 59 tries, kicked 440 goals for 1,057 points. Terry Burthen also played for Riverina in 1958. No wonder the Black and Whites were premiers in 1958. Former New South Wales and Balmain centre Jeff Hawkey coached in 1959, with injuries ruining his and the black and white season. Tough former Newcastle second rower, Cess Bull coached Griffith in 1960 and is still rated as one of the greatest ever 80 minute players seen at the club. The club's next title came in 1961 
in the first year of former Queensland and New South Wales representative John Kelly at the Black and Whites. Kelly was regarded by many to be the best player at the club. The grand final victory was somewhat of a fairy tale finish as it looked doomed to miss finals altogether going into the final round of the competition matches. They had to thank Lamoon, who beat Leeton in the final round, to give Griffith a berth in the finals. Griffith overcame a few hurdles to beat Yenda in the semi-final, and then in the grand final, pulled off a huge upset, beating defending Premier's Tumbarumba at Narandra. Led by the legendary Don Ferner, Tumbarumba went into the grand final with 12 consecutive wins and a red-hot favourite tag in front of a crowd that paid almost £1,600 at the gate. Griffith overcame a one-point half-time deficit to take the Premiership 19-14 in what was described as one of the most brilliant and exciting grand finals ever. Peter Brennan scored two tries to take his season tally to 31, while Neil Doherty landed five goals. Cess Bull, in his farewell appearance, played like a man possessed, outpointing Don Ferner to be named best of field. When you throw in the ability and the class of John Kelly and Laurie Moraski, it was without doubt one of the club's finest teams. When the full-time siren sounded, Griffith supporters invaded the field and chaired both Kelly and Bull from the field. Seth Spence and Kenny Alpin spoke about the grand final, the Bull and Ferner rivalry and John Kelly's tactics. Ferner and Co, yeah, they all out of one family, most of them. Gull Spinks. Gull Spinks, yeah. Bull and Ferner. Tell us about their rivalry. Were they were they mates or just on off field? No, they were rivals on field, but just like any footballer in those days, you yeah. once you got off the paddock, you were mates again, weren't you? What stops on the stops on the field? What goes on in the field? In our time, before our times, John, they used to settle it out the back of the sheds, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> what are the recollections of that grand final against Tumbarumba? Pretty hard grand final, yeah. Um, Kelly, that's coaching style. Fernie used to draw all about three or four players in and then chuck it out the other side of the field and away they'd go and score tries and that. And before they could be football training and that, Kelly said, one man take Ferner and that's what we done and we finished them being them, yeah. So it's, uh, well, whoever, if I was marking you, I mark, I was marking, if he was there, I had to tackle him or whatever, yeah. So it wasn't one bloke chasing him all over the field. It was, if it was there, you had to take him, yeah. Kelly was a believer of whoever was in front of you, you'd make sure you took him. John Kelly stayed on for two more seasons with the 1963 side falling, losing to Wagga Kangaroos in a controversial grand final, seven points to six. Seth Spence and Ken Alpin spoke about the game and John Kelly's control of his players. And what happened in 63 was a Kangaroos was seven, six. Can you remember what happened? Very close finish. Very close finish. As I said, I missed a couple of goals and uh, towards the end of the game, we... Uh, we intercept was taken and they run the length of the field and scored the try and, and goal. So that put the nail in the coffin, yeah. So. Did you play in that one? Yeah, I played it. I made up the numbers. But, yeah, yeah well, I thought we were, we were unlucky, really. Yeah, we were. We scored a try and he disallowed it because the halfback got flattened and he brought it back and they give us a free kick in front of the post after the winger, Stewie Gilliard, had scored a try and he disallowed the try and gave us a free kick and we lost by a point. 
just the way he handled the team. And he didn't take any rot from any player. He straightened it out on the spot and that sort of thing. And I thought it was well done the way he used to do it. Seth Bull had started to try and take over the, the run of things, being the ex-coach, and he'd pull him into gear and I'm the coach here. And I thought, yeah, and I, yeah, I thought he did a good job as far as that went. A significant change to rugby league landscape happened ahead of the 1964 season with a new club being formed, Griffith Waratahs, as Alistair Watt explains. The legends all tell me that uh, it was 1963 that it was evident that there was a, a huge growth of rugby league in the schools, in schoolboy football, and at St Brendan's College um, there, and uh, also the Griffith High School. And good years for those school sports. I mean, Griffith High School won the University Shield against Armadale. Armadale were the favourites, and uh, they won that game at Dubbo. So there was a, a growing strength of uh, junior football, and that was coming through to the junior grades. There were plenty of people that were involved in the game, and they could see that there was a time that they would have to look at all these boys coming through, the, it was felt that there would be an abundance of players, a good quality players sitting on the reserve bench and, and they weren't getting a game. And on many occasions at the Rugby Oval on a selection night in finals with the Griffith side, former players tell me that there would have been anywhere between 30 to 40 players in reserve. Uh, they qualified for reserve grade, but as you know, you can't select all. So there would have been many disappointed players that, that didn't get a game. Uh, they kept turning up for training and they were all part of the club. A few people in the community that thought, well, hang on, how can we go about this? And I believe the uh, a lot of discussion went took place in 63, went on from there. Understanding the meeting was held at the area hotel, which was uh, kind of the, the unofficial headquarters. There was 80-odd people in attendance and Griffith Leagues Club and the Griffith Rugby League Club executives were there. Very, very uh, uh, passionate uh, rugby league supporters. They put it to a vote to agree to have a second side. And I suppose when you select a new side, you've got to look at uh, what you're going to call it. I think uh, the Waratahs was the name put up. Uh, might have had some other names, but uh, they, were, they were formed the Waratahs. It's uh, it's now history that uh, uh, they've been running for quite some years now, the club, uh, with success. They probably have to look back on the uh, former players and the parties that were interested in rugby league to form a second club, which I understand was the likes of Barry Moore. Uh, Barry Moore was uh, son of uh, Ted Moore, E.W. Moore, who the Rugby Oval's named after. There was uh, Bill Jaffrey and, uh, with Sav Silvestro, uh, uh, Warren Jones. Certainly some passion there to form the second club and they were up and away in 1964. Uh, uh, it was only a few years down the track that uh, that brought success for a premiership group 20. So yeah, it's, it had its infancy there and uh, whilst there may have been a bit of angst about having two clubs at the at that time, uh, down through time, the uh, the two clubs, the Griffith Black and Whites and the Waratahs have certainly been uh, competitors against each other in the spirit of rugby league. Many good battles have, uh, have taken place either the Rugby Oval or the Griffith X Service Clubs between these two sides. One of New Zealand's all-time great players and coaches, George Menzies, was appointed coach for the 1964 and 65 season. Menzies' career was amazing, playing in three World Cups and playing 29 test matches for the Kiwis. He also coached New Zealand at a World Cup and was named in 2009 as the 5'8 in the New Zealand Rugby League Team of the Century. Menzies unfortunately broke a leg in the 1965 season. His replacement, as captain was Cess Spence. Laurie Marashki led Griffith in 1966 to play with Balmain. He was dubbed by many to be one of the finest locally born players to wear the black and whites jumper. John Gavin spoke about him. Yeah, well, Laurie started junior football in 58. My brother, Roy Gavin, they both played in the second row at the grand final day. They, they won that. And I think they went through undefeated in 58, the juniors. 
My brother Roy went to Sydney and played President's Cup with Eastern Suburbs for a couple of years. Laurie stayed here and Laurie then, uh, you know, he represented Group 20, Riverina. Uh, he was the first country player to win the country country player of the year and he was he was in the 61 Kelly side. So, and then he then he represented country. I think he went to Balmain. So it was a 66. So Laurie would have been about 24 when he went to Balmain. Quite a good player in Sydney Rugby League. And I can always remember at the St George Lees Club, as you walked up the staircase, there was a huge photograph or picture up on the wall as you walked up. And there was Morawski tackling Mike Cleary at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And he took him out over the sideline, right around the ankles. And Cleary was, you know, ex-Commonwealth Games, 100 metres runner, ex-Wallaby. That would have been the country city game, yeah. And what about at the SCG? My brother Roy took about five of us to the St George Leagues Club. That was like the Taj Mahal to us. <laughs> <laughs> picture of Laurie was there then. And Laurie's parents, Joe and his mother, they were great supporters, of course. And they used to drive the junior boys up to Tumbarumba and back. And they, they were very good supporters of the, when whilst Laurie was playing. The Newcastle connection continued in 1966 with John Clark appointed coach before former Balmain second rower Greg Hayes signed on to coach from 1967 to 1969. The closest they got in that time to a premiership was the 18-9 grand final loss in 1969 to Griffith Waratahs, a loss that still hurts John Gavin who played in that game. We're a very good attacking side and uh, we went through the competition undefeated. And then, of course, in the second semi against Waratahs, the exurban table, uh, that was our first defeat. Yeah, well, then we had to play tomorrow the next week in the the primary final at Narendra to then have another go at the Waratahs, which we did. We carried quite a few injuries then. I always remember I blame our coach for it and I still do, but unfortunately, Paul Bugger's dead now. But on the Thursday night before the grand final, after we'd been through the whole bloody season. He took us for a run up over the bloody hill to get some conditioning. Dude had a crook ankle. Jeff Hoy had been kicked in the kidneys. He couldn't play. There was eight in the eight final teams on that day. Seven were from Griffith. So they took us to the bloody showground at Leet, which was crazy. But anyhow, our reserve grade coach was Donny Hay. No relation to Greg, but Donny, because we had so many injuries. And they brought Donny up from reserve grade to play, which he didn't want to do. And then when we get in the dresser shed at at half-time of the reserve grade to change, Pat Hughes, who was our best defender, was sitting there crying. I said, what's happened, mate? He said, oh, I'm 40 and, and Greg won't let me play. They're going to bring Lassie on. I said, Lassie's been away for six weeks in Queensland. They said, oh, no, we're going to do a half-hearted beat. You know, Lassie will follow the ball and we'll be so far in front of Waratahs, then we'll bring Pat on in the second half. Well, it backfired on us like a bull, bullet shit house. yeah. Noel Gale, unfortunately, Noel's not around, and Keith Gow, who are very good black and white supporters, and they had a lot of money on us. And were they dirty? <laughs> we, well, we did. The only thing they were right about, we beat them in the second half, but was, they were too far in front. <laughs> the next three years were similar, with Newtown's Peter Nobbs signing up for 1970 to 1972 period. Again, it was rivals Waratahs who broke the black and white's hopes of an elusive premiership, losing back-to-back in 1971, 13-11, and again in 1972, 8 points to 2. At the end of the 1971 season, to celebrate the 50-year anniversary of the Griffith Rugby League Club, an end-of-season tour to New Zealand was arranged, as John Gavin explains. 1971 was the Black and White's 50th anniversary. We decided at the beginning of the year we wanted to organise a trip to go away at the end of the football season, 71. The qualification was current player for the Black and Whites. 
or reserve for the reserve or you had to work on working bees because we were going to raise the money ourselves, pay for everything. So we spoke to Jim Monaghan and he said, well, Airlines in New South Wales will be right behind you, we'll, we'll help you. So away we went and, and at the beginning, like all these things, you know, 400 people wanted to go. But when it come to the actual going and on Friday night at training, I used to have a, a ledger, those who wanted to go had to put five bucks in each training night. Wasn't much money but it was a commitment and then we organised, I remember Marvin O'Mara that came out from America and he first grew canned tomatoes for Lee Toner out at Witten. So we'd, we'd go out there on the weekend and, and we'd scruff around in the bloody dirt to Tomatoes. So that's the way we started and, and of course then we, we advised the black and white committee that Stan Ford was the president. He wasn't too keen about it because, you know, he wasn't going to be involved and we said we're not asking the committee to pay for anything and Graham Montgomery and myself were the two representatives on the committee and uh, but we wanted your permission by our own uniform, our own blazers to wear the black and white, that was it, you know. And and a bloke called Ross Mackey that was on the black and white committee and he also worked here, he was sort of our driver. So away we went and there was, it ended up 22 of us all together. There was a bloke by the name of Mal Jones, Lyle's brother, that he was a reserve for the reserves for the reserves. But he worked like everybody and he went on the trip. We had Steve-O's truck and we're going after Mally Stumps to sell them to the clubs and because a lot of them had open fires in those days. So And yeah, we end up pinching these Mally Stumps from Cull's place. We didn't know whose it was. When Cull found out, what upset him, he said, they'd already stacked them up in a heap for us. I said, thanks very much, Cull. During the season, we raised $10,000 and we organised our blazers, our, even the trousers. In Auckland, we played the Ellerslie Club. Thank goodness at the time, the, the actual Kiwi Rugby League Club was on tour in England, so we didn't get, thank goodness. <laughs> and we played the Bay of Plenty, was down at Rotorua, and the uh, the only white guy in that was an English halfback. The rest of them were Maoris. A, a young fellow, well, they reckon he was only 18, but he weighed about 18 stone and run the 100 yards at about 10 seconds. And Joe Sergi can verify that because Joe reckons, Joe was about 9 stone ring and wet, and he reckons it's the fastest 100 metres he'd ever run. He was hanging on to one of his legs. Then we played, our third game was against the Wellington Morris side. But yeah, we played three games. We didn't win any, but we had a great time. The whole trip, we hired our own bus, and the guy that drove the bus was 22-year-old. He was terrific. I remember we were coming down part at Wellington, and he said, no, look across the road. He said, that's the Wellington showground. He said, see that big pavilion on, on the centre there? He said, we had to enlarge that. And of course, we all said, oh, why? He said, to store all the Melbourne Cups. Graham Kennedy led the club in 1973 and 74. However, in his second season, he was replaced by former Balmain player Len Jamison midway through that season. Jamison explains how he got to Griffith via West Wylong and Balmain. I had two years in Sydney and I wasn't really happy. I didn't like Sydney, actually, uh, and I liked the country. Balmain got in touch, well, Stan Ford got in touch with Balmain and uh, they said, uh, yeah, well, we've got a good football here, Laurie Moraski. We'll swap you with Jamison. That's what happened. Yeah. He, Laurie came down, went to Sydney, and I come to Griffith. Where were you born originally? Where were you from originally? West Wylong. When did you go to Sydney? In 1964, 64 or 65. We won the Reserve Gate Premiership in 1965, SCG. That was when they had 78,000 people there. They all come to see me. <laughs> <laughs> They were on the roof of the old buildings and everything. It was, they were worried like hell it was going to cave in because people up, climbed up on top of the old grandstands and things like that. Yeah. Oh, I think you get over the fence if you want to at the showground. Griffith, 66 in Griffith, mm -hmm. your first year. You would have put 69, 71, a couple of grand final losses. Yes. 
Yeah, John, yeah. I'm going to cry. Stop it. <laughs> oh, the 74 side was a good side. Well, oh, but it was good. Greg Hay was a good coach. 69, we went right through and then lost the grand final. Undefeated. What happened? Uh, the wheels fell off. <laughs> yeah, I, I played with Greg in Sydney at Balmain. Yep. And, and I came here in 66 and then in 67 I said, I'm going to give football away and take up shearing. My old man was a contact shearer. And then Greg Hay came over in 1968. How about coming to Griffith? I said, oh, no, I've been there once. So I come in in 66. He said, no, come. So I come back over here and been here ever since. Been really good to me, Griffith, really good. 1975 and the appointment of Wiley halfback Bob Adamson proved a masterstroke, with the Black and Whites finally cracking that elusive premiership with a win over Yanko Wamoon, 22 points to seven the side that Adamson had led to a premiership two years previously. Star of the match was centre Robin Gason, who scored three first half tries. On a momentous day for the club, reserve grade and under 16s won premierships, while the under 18s were narrowly beaten. John Bonetti spoke about the win. We had a good, solid pack of forwards then, uh, that, uh, that year. Robbie Adamson was a good coach. He had us really fit. And basically, we had uh, a young up-and-coming Robin Jason who had scored three tries before half-time. So, you know, they just they just had a mountain to climb. They had some good footballers. They had a, a pommy bloke, um, Phillips, uh, Phillips playing second row, and I uh, went... We talked about it on the Friday night of training and Robbie said to me, he says, how do we handle this big pommy bike? And I said, simple, just give me the ball, I'll run at him all day. And uh, he just got sick and tired of tackling bees because I, I, I wasn't a superstar, but I could play a bit of football. So that's how we handled that. And halfway through the second half, he virtually packed his bags and went back to England. It must have been a great relief, though, for the club and the team, all the guys who played in the of the previous ones. Would it be one of your highlights of your career? Absolutely. After losing all those other grand finals and losing two more after that, to finally get a win, it was just, uh, I mean, it wasn't any, uh, it didn't change my life, but sport-wise, it was a great achievement. During the 1960s and 70s, the club had an incredibly successful period with its reserve grade side and its two underage teams, the under-16s and the under-18s. Between 1960 and 1976, the reserve grade side won 11 premierships, the under 18s won 12 premierships between 1955 and 1977, and the under 16s, three premierships. Splotty Palotho was a big part of those teams in that period, and he speaks about it. Yeah, I was involved in one premiership with the under 18s, the first year I started. And then I was uh, three in a row with uh, Peter Newton, 63, 64 and 65. And then I had three in a row with Donny Hay and Peter Parr. So uh, seven premierships and of all that, I played in two losses. One reserve grade and one first grade. So which first grade one did you play in? In the uh, 72. 
72. With, with Nobsy and John was playing too. When I went out of under-18s, I was struggling to make reserve grade because at the end of 63, there were still two full teams training to try and make the grand final. And then 64, Waratahs started. That's why they started. We had about 20-odd players still training to make the reserve grand final. And yeah. and we played Wagga Magpies the three years with Peter Newton. He was the next Wagga Magpie player. And we played Wagga Magpies three years in a row and beat them three years in a row. In the reserve grade, in reserve grade. and they on paper always had the better team than we did, but we beat them three in, three in a row. Teammate of Spotty and of Italian heritage, John Bonetti recalls a story when Spotty was injured and how their parents disliked them playing rugby league and his senior debut game. Spotty having Italian parents like I did didn't they, naturally they didn't want him to play rugby league and in here one game being a hooker he had half his ear ripped off so he's gone up to hospital and so then they're looking for somebody to go around and tell his mother that Spotty was up in hospital with half his ear ripped off so they said you better go John you're Italian I said like bloody hell I know, I know exactly what the reaction will be so, so I think the late Butch Silvestro went up and told his his mum and dad about. So I don't know what happened after that. What happened, Spotty? She said, threatened to cut my shoes up and boots up and throw my, and burn my uh, shorts and everything. But the next Monday, they were on the line cleaner than before. All the blood was gone. Anyway, the ear, I had stitched up the ear and I, I happened to go to, uh, I was supposed to go back to the hospital to get it, the stitches out. Anyway, I, I want, had to get a haircut. So I went to Pepe's, the hairdresser, he was getting a haircut. I said, oh, I've got to go get me stitches out, Pepe. He said, I'll take them out. So he did. Italian parents, uh, they said, no, no, you're not playing that game. You're the best-looking young bloke in Griffith. After a game, they said, you're the ugliest bloke in Griffith. <laughs> the boys said, they don't agree with that. Could you believe it? What were mum and dad doing work-wise in those days? Oh, it's farmers all, all our lives. So. I, I played soccer in 65 and as a stepping stone to come. And the same as bloody mum and mum wouldn't wash my clothes. So I've got two older sisters, so I used to sneak the clothes down to Bruno Trees and they'd wash them for me and I'd pick them up on Friday. John and Spotty, did your parents end up watch any of your rugby league you played? Well, again, I, I went on and had a reasonable career. I played for Riverina for 10 years straight. So Dad always said he never would never ever come and watch me, but reports was he'd always be hiding underneath a tree watching <laughs> <laughs> Watching the game, so... Um, what about Mum? Oh, no. Oh, no. Ooh. So Mum never watched you play a game? Nah, never watched. Because didn't want that beautiful boy to get hurt. What about Spotty? Did you Yeah, much the same. My mum wouldn't come, but my dad used to come and watch occasionally. Not all the time, but occasionally he used to come and watch me, yeah. Can I tell you the story? I started playing in 66. I'm only played seven or eight reserve grade games and Stan Ford, and you've got to understand who Stan Ford was, dominating sort of a guy, and he come to me and he says you're playing first grade next week, 20 years old. And I said, timid old John, you know, 20-year-old, said to him, yes, yeah, Stan, he says, like the opportunity, I said, but I don't think I'm good enough. He looked at me in the eye and said, we all know you're not good enough, but you come within the 13 best we got. <laughs> <laughs> the 1976 season had most of the Premiership side still playing, and just when you think the club's grand final fortunes were set to change, a familiar foe came up with a familiar result as the Waratahs down the black and whites 16 points to six. Former Manila star Peter Makana 
replaced Adamson as coach in 1977 and was successful in getting the Black and Whites into another grand final stoush against the Waratahs. But like many before him, they too were to go down to the rivals, 34 points to 15. So in the 16 years, from 1963 to 1977, the Black and Whites played in eight grand finals with just the one victory. What made it even harder to swallow was the fact that rivals Waratahs in that similar period from 1967 to 1978 played in eight grand finals and only lost one. But John Bonetti had a simplistic outlook. During that later period, we basically played against the Waratah and they just had better sides on reflection. Probably did it better at the time, but nearly 50 years later, they just had better sides and usually better sides win grand finals. Who were some of those better players that, that really stood out in those Waratah sides that made them good sides? Well, they, they virtually had, uh, you know, they had Ray Brown, who ended up playing for Australia, mainly in Australia. They had Lenny Batola, who's played State of Origin. They just had basically good country footballers with a sprinkling of real stars amongst them. So, and, you know, we had good sides, but nothing compared to the Waratahs at the time. And then their, their captain coach, Bobby Priest, was a sensational as a, as a country football goes, uh, they just had bloody better sides. Simple as that. Former South Sydney player Greg Longhurst took over the coaching for the 1978 and 79 seasons in which the club made finals but did not convert into that next premiership. So that completes episode A of the Griffith Black and White's 100-year anniversary podcast. As part of the anniversary celebrations, the club appointed a group of former players and officials to name a team of the era from the period 1921 to 1953. The selectors have named two players for each position, with the team selected to be announced at the 100-year reunion dinner. It was chosen from a cast of thousands and will be the subject of great debate. The squad selected is fullbacks Bob Sylvester, Bob Stevenson. Wings, Ray McNabb, Fred McNabb, Lex Smay, Bill Jaffrey. Centres, Ken Bridges, Tom Burke, Jack Mean, Kevin Levito. 5'8", Bob James, Ricky De Silva. Halfback, Sepp Chittick, Harold Blight. Lock, Yorkie Ellsmore, Pat Farrell. Second row, Dick Mortlock, Les Garlick, George Bagnall, Bill Tilden. Front row, John Toskin, Joe Murray, Noel Bell, Peter Kasoulis. Hookers, Doolan Murray, Mick Navin. Well, there you have it. The first six decades of the Griffith Black and Whites Rugby League Club. A massive thank you to the proud sponsors of the episode, Griffith Rugby Leagues Club for making this episode possible. We look forward to you joining us for episode B that captures the period from 1980 to 2021.